gangland revenge. We gotta stop this from happening. This is unacceptable. The latest shooting victim and how it put the public in danger. Ominous signs in the COVID fight. We're in a desperate situation. And when you see the modeling, you'll fall off your chair. What BC can learn from runaway infections in Ontario. And highway traffic stuck for hours. It's a miracle that nobody was more seriously injured. The North Shore crash and what we're learning about the driver who caused it. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. Metro Vancouver has recorded its fourth deadly shooting in just two weeks, believed to be tied to the Lower Mainland gang conflict. Last night, another brazen, fatal shooting near a park in Steveston. And that's where we find our Ramina Dea. Ramina investigators confirming the latest victim is known gangster Anis Mohammed. Correct, Chris. The gangster was shot here at Steveston Community Park, an extremely busy place. Now, while police are saying that this was a targeted hit, bullets flying at 8.30 at night puts the community in danger. 29-year-old Anis Mohammed was from Vancouver. So what was the gangster doing at a park in Richmond? How did the killer know? Was it retaliation? It's troubling, it's concerning for us. And we're working hard to really make those linkages. 8.30 p.m. Thursday night. RCMP say people heard the shots and called 911. Muhammad still alive when police arrived. He died in hospital. The actions that these individuals uh, d- uh, did to the public to... to uh put them in danger is completely unacceptable. It's just getting too close to home. This row has families in it, so that's a big concern, right? They come out with their dogs and that, so it could have hit anybody. Muhammad is the fourth young man murdered in Metro Vancouver in less than two weeks. On Wednesday, 24-year-old well-known gangster Gary Kang was shot multiple times in his Surrey home, his family inside. And late last month, two teens were killed in targeted hits, the youngest just 14. IHIT says the murders are all connected to the Lower Mainland gang conflict. Police preparing for war, ramping up resources in an effort to stop the bloodshed. IHIT adamant the public should have confidence the killers will be caught. Instead of really blaming the police, blaming on anyone else, let's blame the people who are actually behind the trigger. The people who are pointing the gun in our community, discharging firearms, putting all of us at risk. Let me tell you this. These people don't care about your safety. They don't care about my safety. They don't care about the young person walking the streets of Richmond. Okay? It is imperative that we find these people, we arrest them, we throw them in jail. That's what we're going to do. Earlier this week, we were told the size and deployment of the Surrey Gang Enforcement Team is increasing. Police will also be stepping up curfew checks and vehicle interdictions. Chris, back to you. All right, Ramina, thank you. Well, it was a particularly nasty commute on the Lower Mainland this morning after a dramatic crash on Highway 1 in North Vancouver. A semi-truck left the road and slammed into a support pillar on the Dollarton overpass, jackknifing before flipping and backing up traffic for hours. And as Catherine Urquhart reports, the driver soon found himself under arrest. Twisted and torn metal was strewn across a section of Highway 1 in North Vancouver. 
the aftermath when a transport truck driver traveling west left the roadway at about 4 a.m., flipping on its side and smashing into the Dollarton overpass. Concerns about the structural integrity of the overpass prompted temporary closure of westbound lanes, leading to traffic chaos. Westbound traffic snaked its way well into Burnaby. The 47-year-old trucker from Surrey, who only suffered minor injuries, now faces charges. Subsequently, one person has been arrested for impaired driving and prohibited driving, and that investigation continues. The truck driver had been transporting hardwood, and he was behind the wheel of a Jordan's flooring vehicle. The company told Global News, Jordan's can confirm that one of our transport trucks was involved. We have begun an internal investigation regarding this situation and are awaiting further information from the RCMP. Later in the morning, engineers were able to determine that the overpass was structurally sound. At that point, the truck was towed away. Then there was a cleanup. The accident caused a fuel spill, so we had to call extra vehicles to the scene with uh, sand, absorbing sand, that could soak up that diesel spill before traffic would be allowed on the highway because it's very slippery and it could have caused more accidents. The highway was reopened just before 10 a.m. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. It's been a deadly 24 hours for COVID-19 in our province. Here's a look at the latest numbers from health officials. We have 617 new cases, which brings our total to 56,632. And with 18 more deaths, B.C. has now lost 988 people to complications from the virus. 358 people are in hospital, 75 of those patients are in the ICU, 48,205 people are considered recovered, leaving us with 6,118 active cases and 8,755 in isolation. Ottawa is promising Canada will receive enough vaccine to inoculate 30 million people by the end of September. But questions still remain here in B.C. about who gets priority for the shots. Richard Zisman reports. Truck drivers deliver goods and services across B.C. and beyond. Now they want a priority delivery of their own, the COVID-19 vaccine. They should be giving consideration for uh, early vaccination uh, to make sure that they're protected and that they're able to continue to provide the service that everybody relies on. So far, the province has prioritized people working in long-term care and health care. Essential workers beyond that are mostly being left in the dark as to when they will receive the vaccine. Drivers in particular are as eager as anybody is to get vaccinated as soon as possible. The problem all jurisdictions are facing is which essential workers to prioritize. There are firefighters, police officers, processing plant workers, grocery store clerks, teachers and more. The expectation is many of these groups will start receiving the vaccine in late March and early April. But there could be prioritization within those own groups if the supply of the vaccine is limited. Teachers with underlying conditions may be um, prioritized or teachers that are itinerant and working with hundreds of of students um, every single week uh, may be prioritized. Until the end of March, the province will be vaccinating long-term care workers and staff those over the age of 80, vulnerable populations, and only recently added paramedics. Protecting our members and the paramedics and dispatchers on the street 
are, are, is key to supporting the system. So we are responding into those care homes, the ICUs, the eMERGE department. Some jurisdictions have given clear guidance on who comes next and how the general population will be prioritized. Let's say my date was July or let's say my date was August. Even if I knew that's when I was going to be vaccinated, it would give me the ability to plan. It would give me the ability to hope. It would give me the ability to know what my life was going to look like. Details are still being worked out on those priority lists and where the vaccinations will actually take place. Information Dr. Bonnie Henry promising will come later this month. Richard Zosman, Global News, Victoria. All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry now to talk a little bit more about our case numbers, the active cases, Keith, and where mm-hmm. some of the concerns are shifting. Yeah, the bad news is our daily average of COVID-19 cases continues to inch upwards on a daily basis. But the good news is our our active cases are dropping. Take a look at uh, the update right now. Fraser Health continues to have the most active cases. But take a look at the right-hand column, the change from December 31st, a drop of almost 1,700. That's very encouraging. Vancouver Coastal basically flatlining. Northern is starting to drop, even though they've got 20 people in the ICU up there. Very worrying. The interior, though, and Vancouver Island is where the growth is coming right now in terms of active cases. Overall, we're down almost 1,700 since the start of the year. So this is encouraging, but it's not entirely the whole story. We want to get the daily case numbers down as well. Back back to vaccines, I can tell you the update, 46,257 people have been vaccinated. And we'll end the week on some good news. Uh, Rarely do we report no outbreaks in long-term care homes or health facilities, but that's the case today. There's no new outbreaks, which is good news. And we're declaring over five outbreaks in long-term care, including the Tabor Care Home in Abbotsford, where tragically 26 people died. So we end with some good news. Yeah, okay, I appreciate that. Thanks very much, Keith. Have a good weekend. Despite some of that good news, though, and the appearance that the situation isn't that great here in B.C., it's even worse in Ontario, where the pandemic is now starting to overwhelm parts of the health care system. And now the federal government admits they currently won't meet national immunization targets. Aaron MacArthur has the latest. Open the door for Staff in Ontario ICUs working flat out. More than 1,400 people hospitalized with COVID-19. And now Ontario planning to transfer patients to other facilities around the province to share the load. There is real concern the situation will only get worse. Hospitalizations and ICU use are sort of a a downstream signal. What's happening in the community now with new numbers means we can project quite accurately what's going to happen in four or six weeks down the road. Despite almost two weeks of a province-wide lockdown, more than 4,000 new cases were announced Friday. In a desperate situation, and when you see the modeling, uh, you know, you'll you'll fall uh, fall off your chair. Everything is on the table right now. Across the country, it appears to be a race between the virus and the vaccine. So far, the virus is winning. Several provinces are on the edge of exhausting supply of the Pfizer vaccine. And despite promises of more, the vials not coming nearly fast enough. February, we expect to receive between 366 and 367,000 doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine per week. The federal government today admitting its target of nationwide immunity not possible unless other vaccines are approved. So the numbers that we are using for our predictions are based on the assumption that the vaccines that we have procured will indeed be approved. Nationwide, about 20,000 more people will have been given some protection by the end of the day. 
including hundreds of vulnerable federal inmates. Overall, about a quarter of a million Canadians have had at least one dose. It will take millions more before restrictive measures are eased. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. And one day after B.C.'s COVID restrictions were extended another month, new job numbers show the economic impact of the pandemic is increasing. Overall, B.C. was the only province to have added jobs, but the hard-hit arts, tourism and hospitality sectors are bracing for more cuts and closures. John Waugh reports. At quick glance, the inside resembles a crime scene. The plot twist, it was the Rio Theatre's method of survival, a way to keep patrons safe and the business alive during this deadly pandemic. It's torture, you know. I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm treading water and the boat's not coming. And it keeps saying that it's coming, but it's not. Despite being willing to operate at only 12% capacity, these seats haven't been filled for months. Closures of theatres in B.C. extended once again, this time until February 5th. No showings no employment. I'm afraid I'm going to lose all my staff who are like family to us. But the BC government is showcasing the most recent labour force numbers in a different light. BC seems to be the uh, small glimmer of hope. Uh, We're the only province to see uh, jobs increase, even though it was a modest amount. While the provincial picture in December starts with some positives, like 6,600 new jobs in construction, it quickly takes a dark turn for sectors already devastated by the pandemic. 7,400 jobs lost in accommodation and food services. Another 1,500 cut in culture and recreation. Insult being added to injury here because of NDP incompetence and bungling when it comes to uh, more quickly and efficiently getting the supports out the door to help uh, uh, businesses and workers. Vulnerable businesses argue continued blanket restrictions without concessions or adjustments are pushing them into crisis. When I see all these other businesses booming and busy and crowded, and yet my place is closed down. This conversation is free-flowing. There's no playbook for this. Right now, the Rio says there's been no conversation at all. If all the other challenges to save the Rio didn't break me, this is coming close. Result of feeling stuck in a real-life horror movie, seriously lacking in dialogue. John Hua, Global News. A Kootenai mayor has suddenly stepped down after he was scrutinized for taking a family trip over the winter break. Bruno Tassoni, the mayor of Castlegar, submitted his resignation today. In his letter, he doesn't give a reason for his decision, but writes, it goes without saying that I have been a target of harmful and bullying behavior, along with outright disrespect within the systems I have operated in upon my arrival as councilman over six years ago. It recently came to light that he had traveled to Mount Baldy in the Okanagan over the holidays. City Council will appoint a chief election officer and a by-election will be held within 80 days to vote for a replacement. He is the latest politician in B.C. to come under fire for travel, even though this was domestic. Two councillors, one in Wachosan and another in Victoria, have both apologized for leaving the country last month. A driver who fought a distracted driving ticket all the way to B.C. Supreme Court and won. The officer uh, who pulled me over, uh, he said that he saw me holding a phone to my ear. How he was able to prove the officer wrong and what it means for the rest of us whenever we're behind the wheel. Next on the News Hour. Lindsey Graham, you are a traitor to the country. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham faces an angry mob of Trump supporters 
Well, Democrats move to remove the president from power. New developments in D.C. coming up in a moment. And one year after the Iran plane crash and the emotions are still raw. The continuing demand for justice later. Right now, though, a B.C. man who fought his fine for having his cell phone in his car while driving has won his latest battle in B.C. Supreme Court. Paul Johnson tells us why the court threw out the guy's ticket and what it, mean, what it might mean for other similar cases. The podcast What's wrong with a little uh, Joe Rogan podcast in the morning on the way to work? Just pulled over, uh, just driving on my way to work. As Campbell Rivers' Ryan Blow found out, streaming it from his phone via Bluetooth as he drove in his truck wasn't something the police officer who stopped him thought was legal. Though Ryan thought he was good to go. So my phone was actually in the cup holder um, of my truck. As a lot of British Columbians are finding out, there's still a gray zone surrounding the laws about distracted driving. Most now understand that texting or holding your phone while driving is reckless and illegal. But what about a situation like Ryan's, where the phone was in a cup holder and he wasn't interacting with it any more than someone, say, listening to the radio? Particularly when it comes to the use of an electronic device while driving or distracted driving, there's a great deal of officer discretion at the roadside in handing those kinds of tickets out. So inevitably, we are going to see those tickets challenged. Lawyer Sarah Lehman says as the law catches up with technology, these issues are slowly being clarified through cases like Ryan's. While he lost on his first attempt to beat it in court, his appeal was successful, with the judge writing, listening passively to music or to a podcast, which is what the appellant in this case did, is not a form of quote-unquote use. Ryan, as you can imagine, was quite gratified. Hopefully, um, you know, moving forward, this is something that uh, other people in similar situations and lawyers, you know, representing their clients can, uh, you know, use. And then there's this, which may keep some lawyers up at night. Ryan not only saved himself a fine and points on his license, but avoided a big legal bill as well. His successful outing at Supreme Court was done entirely with the strength of his own high school education, and some elbow grease. Just Google, man. That's it. Paul Johnson, Global News. Work for him. All right, still ahead, COVID contributes to a great loss in BC law. He could get people to say things uh, that simply nobody else could. The incredible skill and one high-profile case that made prosecutor Mike Petrie a household name. Also tonight, a teenager goes missing after a fight over video games. The effort to find him, next. Good news for Highway 1 in Burnaby. Finally cleared the semi with a shifted load off to the side. It was eastbound at Gillardy, blocking two of the available four lanes. Unfortunately, lots of volume remains, though, through the Burnaby Lake stretch from Grandview Highway in Vancouver. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside Walmarts and the Real Canadian Superstores throughout B.C. For hours and locations, visit sussexinsurance.com. Open every day. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Centre. A search was launched today on Vancouver Island for a missing teenager not seen since New Year's Day. Search crews and volunteers fanned out across a wooded area in Langford today near Goldstream Park looking for any sign of 16-year-old Andre Cordemanche. The Search and Rescue Dog Association of Victoria also joined the search with hopes the dog's superior sense of smell could also help find the teen. He's been known to frequent parks and trails in the area 
Police say he was last seen walking near the 2900 block of Cressida Crescent. That's after he got into an argument with his parents. I uh, said that we'd probably take his video games away. And then Andre, he uh, went downstairs and came back a while later. And then uh, my wife tried to stop him from leaving. And he said, the last thing he said was, if I don't have my video games, I don't have anything. And we haven't seen him since Friday. This is, uh, mm -hmm. I, I still believe he's out there. We have hope that he's still out there, but uh, with a week having passed, you know, time is of the essence. We're, we're out here for, for Andre in the fab. It's a pretty bulb. Video surveillance also shows Andre taking a right near the train tracks in the wooded area that's being searched today. Well, you may not know his name, but he was famous in B.C. legal circles. Mike Petrie distinguished himself as the lead prosecutor of serial killer Robert Picton. Petrie was a well-known and well-respected Crown attorney. Unfortunately, he also has become a victim of coronavirus. Petrie died recently, and Ted Field looks back at his impressive career. Mike Petrie loved his family, and one of his joys was getting together and making music. He was a, a, a great guitar player and encouraged that uh, with both his friends. Uh, he came and played at my house on a number of occasions, but also with his family. He also loved the law. In his 34-year career as a Crown Prosecutor, he took on many criminal cases, but none larger than when he was the lead prosecutor in the William Picton murders. It was the largest mass murderer in Canadian history. So you can imagine the, the um, pressure there was on Mike and the Crown team when they put that case together. And ultimately, they, of course, resulted in, resulted in, a, in convictions. It's really just the culmination uh, for me, of what was a lot of grief uh, over a lot of years for a lot of people. Mike was a people person, and those skills showed through talking to juries and victims' families. But it was in court where his cross-examinations were legendary. He could get people to say things uh, that simply nobody else could. I equate this to somebody being able to pick another's pocket while the victim is watching you do it. In 2017, he suffered a stroke and had been struggling with stroke-related issues. His family says a man who fought for others in court passed away from COVID pneumonia. He was 67. He was brilliant. He was tough. He was fair. Great strategist. Uh, fantastic cross-examiner. But more importantly, he was a wonderful colleague and friend. Missed by his court family, missed by his blood family, and missed by many others who would just like to sit, chat, and listen to some music with Mike. Ted Field, Global News. Quite a character and our condolences to his family. Still ahead, some major developments in Washington, D.C. This is urgent. This is emergency of the highest magnitude. The likelihood Donald Trump could be removed from office early. And how some families of children with special needs are reaching a COVID breaking point. 
Traffic is steady both ways at the Patello Bridge tonight. Keep in mind, though, prep for the Patello Bridge replacement is already underway during the overnight hours, and Old Yale Road is blocked to northbound traffic between Spruce and Highway 17 from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. Kermat Collision and Auto Glass provides no-cost windshield chip repairs with your insurance coverage. And Kermat donates 100% of their income from chip repairs through Kermat Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. A lot of people say it should have happened sooner, but Twitter has permanently suspended U.S. President Donald Trump's account. The social media giant says that decision was made following a, quote, close review of Trump's tweets and the risk of further incitement of violence. And the calls to remove the president from office are growing, as Trump says he will skip a time-honored tradition. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the latest developments. Amid growing fears that Donald Trump is a danger to security and democracy, Democrats are increasing pressure to end the presidency early. This is urgent. This is emergency of the highest magnitude. The House Speaker telling her caucus in a letter, if the president does not leave office imminently and willingly, the Congress will proceed with our action. Those actions are impeachment. So many nerves are rattled, Nancy Pelosi also spoke with defense leaders to discuss available precautions for preventing an unstable president from initiating military hostilities or ordering a nuclear strike. Articles of impeachment could come as early as Monday, a stinging rebuke of President Trump's fitness for office that's sounding alarms in both parties. I will definitely consider whatever articles they might move. There's resistance to the rhetoric, but also consequences. Lindsey Graham, you are a traitor to the country. Trump supporters verbally accosted Senator Lindsey Graham at a Washington, D.C. airport after he turned on the president. The Constitution controls, not the mob. A sign Trump's stronghold on the party and its people remains tight, even as cabinet members and staffers begin to flee, citing the riots as the last straw. A situation that's put Trump in a self-induced struggle to criticize those he coddled during the crisis. To those who broke the law, you will pay. We love you. You're very special. The president feeling and responding to the heat that's burning from all sides. This moment calls for healing and reconciliation. But in a sharp contrast, less than 24 hours later, Trump announced that he won't attend the upcoming inauguration, pushing back on his own call for a peaceful transfer. On Friday, President-elect Biden hit back, calling Trump incompetent and saying that he agrees with his decision to stay home. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington. Now, they were professors, doctors, newlyweds. They were mothers and fathers. One year ago today, they were all on that Ukraine international flight PS752 that was shot down by the Iranian military, killing everyone on board. With the pain still raw, Global's Nagar Moshtahedi spoke with two women, one who lost her parents in last year's crash and another who sadly knows very well what that woman is going through. A mystery in the field of Iran that soon revealed itself to be a Canadian tragedy. The downing of Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752, killing everyone on board, including 55 Canadians and 30 permanent residents. My mom has just graduated medical school from Iran. Among the dead, Kimia Purshabon Oshibi's parents. My life as a survivor of my parents has changed forever. 
Nasser Porshaban Oshibi and Firuze Madani, two doctors so close to being recertified in Canada, now missing out on the soon-to-be graduation of their only child. My life is just different now, and this is the way my life is. Maybe I don't have parents that would come to my graduation, but I have other loved ones, and that's how my life is. Kimia's fate took her on a different flight out of Iran one week before her family, much like Lata Pada, who never boarded Air India Flight 182 35 years ago. Like Kimia, Lata suffered unimaginable loss. Her husband Vishnu Pada and two teenage daughters, Arti and Brinda. I know that it's just a year and I, I can trace back to how I felt a year into the Kanishka tragedy. It was very raw. My pain was very raw. She's risen above the pain, and her advice now to Kimia and others, please treat yourselves kindly and give yourself some time. Advice that can only be offered by someone who also suffered unthinkable grief. I really like this one too. This is three but as one year passes, Kimia wants you to know, tragedies like this they just don't end and things never get better. You do learn to live with that grief like everyone learns to live with grief. But this grief is different because it does change your perspective about the world. Negar Moshahedi, Global News. For more coverage of the one-year anniversary and extended interviews, you can visit globalnews.ca. In Health Matters tonight, while the pandemic restrictions have been a challenge for all of us, for many families with children with special needs, the daily grind at home has been especially challenging. Nadia Stewart reports on new research into the added hardship those families are going through. In all of this, the underlying impact I'm most concerned about is the mental health impact. Tracy Humphrey says there has been no end to the stories she's heard from families of children with special needs who've been struggling to cope through the pandemic. I had families contact me over the winter break asking if I thought they would extend it. And if I thought that maybe it would be extended, they were planning to put their children in care because they couldn't manage any longer with no services or help in the home. That sentiment was captured in a recent survey conducted by researchers at SFU looking to better understand the impact of the pandemic on families of children with special needs. Of the 238 families surveyed, 34% said their children had become more aggressive during the pandemic. 37% were worried their child might hurt another family member. And 9% were considering putting their children in the ministry's care. They're just stretched beyond uh, their their means. And not to mention that, you know, some of these families have a lost income. The survey also found the families had experienced a decline in their quality of life, a sentiment echoed in an earlier survey conducted by BC's representative for children and youth. Ahoy. Advocates say the pandemic is exacerbating problems long overdue for a solution. This has put such a harsh spotlight on some long-term underlying causes of some systemic failures. The SFU survey highlights three key needs for more flexibility as to how the families can use the government money they receive, increased transparency and information, and there's a desperate need for more respite care. If we don't give them a break, that's where we get that 9% of families saying, we can't take this anymore. Families are hopeful government is listening. Nadia Stork, Global News. 
Up next, turning shipping containers into shelter. The ambitious plan to build a better place for Victoria's homeless. And in sports, the young Canuck trying to prove he's ready for prime time with only a few days until the season starts. You very rarely see Squire's shoes, so I will tell you right now they're cool. You like them? I like them. I lend them to you, but I don't think you'll fit in them. We, we have no time. I can give you my ties, <laughs> but not my shoes. Uh, like most training camps, everyone knew that the majority of the Canucks roster spots were pretty much spoken for. But there are always a couple of players who could break their way into the lineup with a good training camp. And this year, it looks like rookie winger Nils Hoaglander has earned a spot, possibly on the second line, where he has played all week. Nils Hoglander has received a lot of attention with his skill set so far in camp. Of course, he still has to show he can do it in a game where the intensity will be much higher. But the Canucks feel he's ready to handle it. Young players and how they adapt and, and whether they're mentally ready to play at the NHL and, and confident enough to play. Uh, and I think he's shown that so far... He is. He's tenacious, very tenacious. I've liked that part. I'm, I'm nervous a little bit, but yeah, as I said before, I, when I play my best hockey, that's when I have my confidence. and I, I will still have that in, in this camp too. Hoglander could certainly help take the pressure off the likes of Pedersen, Miller and Besser in the scoring department, but that main core is the key again. They need to produce if the Canucks are going to go far this season. Our top guys and, you know, our guys that our leaders have to step up and, and be big parts again this year like we, you know, we were last year. And um, like I said, we've got to hold ourselves to a higher standard and, you know, can't just expect good enough. We've got to keep getting better and better. The Canucks went three rounds last year in the playoff bubble. It was a valuable experience for this young team that believes they've got what it takes to take it even further this year. I think we know what we're capable of now. I mean, last year we had a lot of new faces and, you know, on paper we were supposed to be, you know, be a good team or whatever, or be better than the year before. But I think we proved that we uh, could beat anybody in the National Hockey League. And um, I think it should, you know, going back to what I just said, is we should have a high expectation as a group and a high standard to uh, help push us a little bit more. So the Canucks are really in the home stretch now of their training camp. One more full scrimmage tomorrow night then a couple of more practices, and then they head to Edmonton Tuesday where they will drop the puck on the new season Wednesday night against the Oilers. At Canucks Training Camp at Rogers Arena, Barry DeLay, Global Sports. And six players on the Dallas Stars have apparently tested positive for COVID-19, which means the Stars will not start on time. They might not start now until... Uh, January 19th. The schedule will have to be altered, although the NHL built in some room for that. They aren't saying what players uh, have tested positive, mind you. The Columbus Blue Jackets also kept players out of practice today because of COVID-19 protocols as well. Well, if you take away that easy 40-3 win Seattle had over the New York Jets last month and just looked at all their other wins, most of their victories this season were in close games. In fact, the average margin of victory for Seattle was a touchdown. Now, that seems to be a Seahawks trait over the last few years, the ability to win close games, which tomorrow's playoff matchup against the Rams could be because the Seahawks right now are only favored by three points. To be able to 
be in tight matchups, tight games at the end of the you know, end of the season to help prepare you for the playoffs because playoff matchups are always kind of crazy. They're they can be emotional, they can be all this and that, and and the, the team that can really settle down and be calm and be poised and be focused in on what what the mission is and, and execute at the end of the game. Uh, those are the teams that usually win. Former L.A. Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda died today at the age of 93. He was one of those sports figures that people recognized even if they weren't in the sports. He spent, get this, he spent 71 years working for the Dodgers as a player, a coach, and a manager. And as ESPN so aptly put it today on their website, he loved being a Dodger and he loved being Tommy Lasorda. <laughs> Still remember him chasing the uh, mascots around. It's funny <laughs> Funny guy, great character. Okay, we're back in a moment right after this with Satellite Debris. Well, I never knew it before, I watched today, but marmots are apparently pretty good athletes, Well, Yes. Well, when France 3 television channel wanted to promote sports, they went and found one of the greatest athletes in the animal kingdom, the marmot. I see a whole new sport. So uh, this is from a couple from Progressive Insurance where um, somebody teaches you not to become your parents. We really need a sign to live, laugh, and love? Yes. yes. The answer is no. I can help new homeowners not become their parents. Kiana. Nope. Koei No. Joaquin. No. It just takes practice. Give it a shot. Do you hear that? It's a constant battle. We're going to open a PDF. Who's next? Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home an auto with us. No fussing, no cussing, and no cussing. All right, everyone, we made it. My job is to help new homeowners who have turned into their parents. I'm having a big lunch and then just a snack for so dinner. we're just... using a speakerphone in this store. Is that a good idea? One of the ways I do that is to get them out of the home. You're looking for a grout brush. This Guard, is the... did he ask for your help? No, no, no. We all see it. 
We all see it. He has blue hair. Okay. Blue. Progressive can't protect you from becoming your parents, but we can protect your home and auto when you bundle with us. Keep it coming. You don't know him. It's oh. so true. Okay, so with uh, hockey starting next week, I thought we'd go back uh, just over a year to one of my, actually one of my all-time favorite commercials we've shown in all the years we've done this, uh, the Geico Walrus. Here we go. Geico makes it easy to get help when you need it. With licensed agents available 24-7. It's not just easy. It's having a walrus and goal easy. It's a walrus! Ridiculous! Yes! Nice in, big guy! Good job, Duncan! Way to go! It's not just easy, it's Geico easy. Oh, Duncan, stay up. No sleepies. No sleepies. Huh? I mean, if Demco and Holtby don't work out, perhaps the Canucks should look into drafting a Walrus, if that's allowed. Oh, it's good to have two good goalies, though, isn't it? All right, no, uh, no sleepies and uh, no more rain, or at least maybe not so much, uh, heading into the weekend for the first part anyway, Christy. You're right. Yeah. So we will see a fair amount of cloud tomorrow, but at least a mostly dry day is not until the evening that the rain returns. So use tomorrow, everyone, if you can. I know some people work, uh, but uh, we're right back into the period uh, into rain as we head into Sunday and into next week as well. Get out and enjoy it tomorrow if you can. Thanks very much for watching a wild weekend news. Have a good weekend, everybody.